the first church in existence was in the era for about 300 years when there was only one church. After the resurrection of Jesus and the events in the book of Acts, there was only one church. And the only divisions came about 300 years later. And, of course, I am talking about what we now know as the Catholic Church. And under the term Catholic Church, there are actually about five divisions that happened starting around 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, let me get to my notes. They're still in my Bible, unfolded up here. There they are. And I do have to, to follow some notes. That way, believe it or not, I won't get in bunny trails because there's so much here that I need to just hit the high points and not get lost. I'm one of those guys that loves the details, but I just need the high points. But the Catholic Church at about 300 or so began a series of divisions over doctrine because the main purpose, you see it in the book of Acts and the epistles, they had to deal with a lot of wrong thinking, a lot of heresy, things that would, that would destroy the faith of young believers. And so they had to deal with heresies. And along the way, while they were debating what they believed, what they didn't believe, because they were growing in this. If you, I don't know if you realize it, but the Apostle Paul, when he was writing in some of the older epistles like uh, Galatians, uh, Corinthians, and Ephesians, he was putting onto paper what he had observed for a decade, two decades, or three decades of how the, God was working in this new thing called the church. Until then, for 6,000 years, there had been Judaism, but there was no church on the planet. And so Paul is putting under paper what he has seen and how problems are dealt with and what he saw, for instance, how the Holy Spirit was working, particularly in 1 Corinthians, you'll see that. Church structure shows up especially strongly in Ephesians. And so... Uh, now we have about 300 years on, you still have people whose relatives were involved, were some of the original uh, leaders of the church, especially into the first century. But by uh, 300, there's some serious heresies are coming that threaten to split the church. So when they deal with that, as they dealt with it, they realize some of their differences. Also at that point, the church had spread into two major and completely different parts of the world. And to complicate things right about that time and a little bit later, um, uh, some other religions were rising up that were very uh, violent and very aggressive and began to press on the church to the point of overtaking cities that used to be capitals of Christianity. Constantinople is one of those. Um, so five divisions came up. I'll name them real quick. We'll move on. The Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Church of the East, the Anglican Church, which we know is the Church of England, the Old Catholic Church, which that's why you use Catholic for all of these five, and then the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm going to talk about this. All of those, each one of those I name to this day still traces the legitimacy of their clergy, by apostolic secession back to this period and beyond, to the earlier period described in early Christianity. So most of them will trace, especially those with a central authority, will trace it back to Peter. Okay, now let's move on here. I'm going to tell you some personal experiences, and maybe some of this will relate to you. Um, growing up in the 60s and 70s, there were some doctrines taught, especially in evangelical churches, and they're still somewhat popular. Um, but at that point, they're always trying to 
piece together some puzzles so that their end-time theology would make sense. And one of the things necessary for, for one of the views of the end times is you always have to figure out who Antichrist is. And so we've had a steady string of people named as Antichrist, and as soon as they thought they would plug it in, Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist for a while until he died, and uh, virtually every pope for the last, uh, well, this has only been a real push for the last hundred years, frankly, this real strong view of the end time. So um, growing up in a Pentecostal church, we heard lots of sermons, and the Pope was always the Antichrist, and the Catholic Church was always the uh, great whore of Babylon. And so it always seemed to neat, fit neatly until that Pope would be dismissed and then have someone else, or someone would rise up in the communist world, and they would take the title of Antichrist. Entire books were written. Usually once you get revved up in that area, you really feel absolutely propelled into naming a date for the Lord's coming. You write a book about it. He doesn't come. The book's thrown out, and you make a new book with a new name for the Antichrist and a new date for the Lord to come back. You guys, I don't approve of that. If the Scriptures say, no man shall know, then no man shall know. Don't write books about when God's going to come back. Just don't do it. If it says, no man shall know, figure you might fit into that category. Maybe. Anyway, um, we do need to study the end times. I do encourage you to study the scriptures, come to a conclusion you're at peace with, but don't go beyond scripture. Don't set dates and don't assume that anybody is the Antichrist. And above all, do not ever walk in fear. Last time I checked, Jesus wins. He's already won it, it's done on the cross. We need to get that settled and stop the stupidity. I have very little patience for that. As believers, we need to know our God, we need to know the work of the cross, we need to rest in it and stop being pinheads. Yes, you can have opinions about the end time, but write them in chalk. We must accept mystery. We must accept the fact that you and I will never have all the facts together until we see him face to face. And then, go ahead and write a book. No one will read it, we won't need it. We'll have him in front of us. We'll be living in his kingdom on earth, okay? So anyway, all that rant over, let's go on. I grew up in that time, and one of the side effects that was very unfortunate is that if you were a Protestant growing up, you began to be afraid of the Catholic kids because there's so much you did not understand, and what you thought you understood was, was kind of wrapped in fear and uh, all kinds of goofy stuff. So it really set up some prejudice that never should have happened. And the same thing on the other side. The Catholic kids, wondering why they're always being glared at by the Protestant kids, they began to react the same way. So I mean, just real stupidity going on. And so I grew up in the middle of that. And what I treasure looking back is how the Lord, in His loving way, kind of helped us all through by helping us have people that we met. One of the great ways to do away with fear is to meet people and talk with them. Always look for the good. One of the points of, of dealing with our baggage is to understand that there is some good and there's revelation in each part of the church that God's given us. We need to hold to the good. That stuff we disagree with, okay, just disagree with it, but don't be disagreeable while you do it. And uh, it, for me, it, it came in some really quick steps that I'm very thankful for. First of all, I had an uncle in my family. He was the, uh, 
He was the black sheik of the family because he married a Catholic lady, Aunt Daisy. And so Apollo Belvedere, first of all, having the name Apollo Belvedere, you're going to stand out anyway. But Apollo Belvedere, they call him Speed for short. Uh, anyway, probably if you guys are into Greek mythology, you might understand why. Anyway, Apollo Belvedere, Uncle Speed, uh, and his family were devout Catholics. And he's gone to be with the Lord and... Uh, my uncle, my cousin David, is still a very strong Catholic believer who loves Jesus and is doing a good work. Anyway, that began to change stuff. That challenged some of this weird stuff that was in my head from having some of this uh, preaching with the wrong slant that I just grew up hearing over and over again. Many of you can relate to that. Um, then as I got involved in the charismatic movement, even at Oral Roberts University, I remember one of the guys that I thought a lot of, he's a good friend of mine, he invited me to go to Catholic Mass with him. That was quite an experience for a Protestant kid. You know, I didn't even know what genuflect meant. And uh, I had no idea about closed communion. We practice open communion here, but in the Catholic Church, it's a very specific doctrine. Um, so a Protestant kid slipped in and uh, had communion. I thought it was pretty funny. I'd never had wine before. That was an experience. I thought it was pretty cool. Everybody drinking from the same cup. How'd they do that? Um, and those little wafers, I used to put them in my own mouth. But in this particular mass, the priest put them in my mouth. Some of you guys who are Catholic are relating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but there are other things about even those brief exposures that I liked. I didn't know why I liked it, but I liked it. I liked the stability. I liked... There's something ancient going on here. And now I know, and we'll talk about today, what's ancient there are the roots that we all share in common. You have to understand, when we talk about any of these, we can have strong, vigorous disagreements about theology. We can have strong differences about how we practice our Christianity. But in the end, we have one Savior. And we need to walk slow and realize there's one judge only one judge, and none of us are authorized to get judgmental and basically antichrist in our actions. Anything that's the opposite of what Jesus would do is antichrist. And the more there's more talk about the antichrist spirit than there is about a physical antichrist in the scriptures. I'm not disallowing any scriptures, but I'm telling you the emphasis is the cross and the love of Jesus. We need to get back to that. So, um, I had a band all the way through probably my junior year of high school, all the way through college. I had a band. We traveled throughout the Midwest and uh, had some record offers and stuff like that. But the neat thing was these were all, this my sister plus some girls that we all went to high school together. Uh, one of them named Donna had a chaotic, difficult life, lost her mother in early age, and she longed for stability. And I didn't understand it at first, but where she went was she landed in the Catholic Church. Just really felt that's where she belonged. And she has been a worship director and been involved in the Catholic Church now for nearly 40 years and loves the Lord Jesus with all of her heart. And uh, uh, but that began, again, just began to change some of my views. I'm just kind of rattling, this, rattling these off. Things really got messed up when this uh, girl from California came into my life. Portuguese, Chinese, Hawaiian, Catholic. Not, well, you were basically heathen by the time I met you. But <clears throat> she had basically 
gotten the left foot of fellowship uh, uh, from her background. But, um, and she had just come to the Lord. And so that really messed me up because I'd never in my plans growing up, Protestant, Pentecostal, whatever, I'd never really planned that I would marry this Catholic girl and then also inherit a daughter while I'm at it, which I did. Um, but then, see, when you marry someone, you marry their family, right? Well, before I married Julie, I had to have the phone call with Papa Madeiras. And Papa Madeiras was a devout Catholic, and his family were devout Catholics all the way back to Portugal. Probably have to go back for centuries, okay? So talking to him, he spoke with pidgin English because even though he was pure Portuguese, he was a U.S. Marine, but he spent much of his time in Hawaii. That's where he is based. So he spoke pidgin English, kind of, kind of Hawaiian Portuguese clipped English. It was cool. And when he wanted to really impress somebody, he really got it strong. So I'm on the phone saying, I'd like to ask for your, the hand of your daughter, Juliana. And Mary says, what have I got a problem with that? Uh, I didn't get that right, but I get it right here. He says, see, the problem is you're, you're not Roman Catholic, and worst of all, you're a howly. Yeah, that means white boy. So, <clears throat> and so it, from there, I mean, he was threatening not to come to the wedding, and I didn't quite know that he would always string you along until he finally, because he's a cream puff on the inside. He was a big man. He's about, he was at least six feet tall, weighed about 300-some pounds. Um, like I say, he was a Marine, and he was a coach, high school coach. And what I came to find out about him was by the time he was married and already had children, he really had a call to the priesthood. But being a part of the Roman Catholic Church really didn't know how to fulfill that call, so he just did what he could. As a coach, he reached out to hurting kids his entire life. And even after his coaching days, even working in a... a 7-Eleven type place. There were guys who would come in to rob him, and before long, he'd have him up against the wall with his tummy saying, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go to jail. Let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, he would just care about these kids and was fearless. And I came to love him today. Now, he's with the Lord today, but um, I discovered a loving heart for people in this man that loved the Lord with all his heart, never left the Catholic Church. Remember going to Mass whenever he came to visit. We knew what would happen. It was time for the entire family to get up at some ungodly hour of the morning and go to Mass here in Fort Smith. And I love those times because he loved Jesus. And I watched him uh, struggle with physical issues at times all through the night. And what would happen is he would have the Word of God open, studying the Scriptures, doing his battle while praying and studying the Word. We'd come in and I'd talk with him by the hour about the Lord. And another member of the family drove me nuts. I absolutely loved the guy, but he just broke every single stereotype. His name was Brother Joseph, and Uncle Joe was a monk. And uh, he would visit us from California, and you'd pick him up at the airport, and he would always have an umbrella. I think it was always a black umbrella, I remember. And, you know, in his uh, kind of his monk thing and a, and a black hat. But as soon as we got home, he was, you'd find walk in the kitchen and have gym shorts on making something, some Hawaiian dish, you know. He was Hawaiian, like he's barefoot, period. Didn't matter if it was winter. But I would sit down and talk with him, and we'd talk by the hour, and I discovered how much we shared in common about caring 
for hurting people because Brother Joe, Uncle Joe, had devoted his life to reaching out to populations of people who were misunderstood, uh, had twisted lifestyles, but he cared about people. We began to talk about the gospel of Jesus. We talked about the way Jesus reached out to the hurting, to the broken, to the wounded, to the discarded, and I discovered that we agreed on 95% of the stuff, and the 5% we could disagree on and not worry. And one of the big ones that hit me in my final thing, as far as personal experiences, is one of the guys I met at ORU had graduated about a year before I came to ORU, but he was there all the time. His name was Terry Law. He's a musician, and he started up a a musical group. But he had a call to go to places where the gospel was closed. You could not go. And he found himself in Poland. And I've heard this personally from him. While a young man fulfilling that call in Poland, which was under communist control, was under control of Ceausescu, which was, he was worse than the leader of the Soviet Union. Ceausescu was violent where he was at. Well, he was having trouble. He couldn't even find a place to live. And he knew God had called him to Poland, but he didn't know what to do. And the bishop of Poland, the Catholic bishop of Poland, somehow heard about this young guy, this young student from ORU, and he had a spare apartment in his quarters. And he offered for this guy to come and stay. It was in a basement apartment. And to, to Terry's surprise, um, the bishop... Poland began to come down. Now, remember, the Bishop of Poland was also under persecution. The, even the Catholic Church was being persecuted by the communist regime in Poland. Well, this bishop would come down, and they would pray together every morning. And not only would they pray, but and this lets me tip back to my Pentecostal side, they would pray in the Spirit, in a prayer language, every morning and seek the face of God for safety and for the kingdom to rise, for hurting people to meet Jesus. This went on for several years. He was the guest of the Bishop of Poland. You guys know who I'm talking about? Well, the Bishop of Poland was later called in and um, anointed to be the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. We know him as Pope John Paul. And I cannot pronounce his Polish name, so I'm not even going to try. But what I'm saying is these things all really knocked the old idea, the baggage in my brain about the Roman Catholic Church. Didn't make me agree with all the doctrines. There are doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church I absolutely, totally am against. But there are also core doctrines that we got from the Catholic Church that we still stand on. When we talk about the apostolic, the, uh, the various creeds, those creeds were worked out by the only church that existed at the time. And we still stand by those creeds because they're the core beliefs we have about Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the power of the cross and what the church is. So that's that's what I just kind of want to, if you forget everything else, get that. That scripture we read in Mark 9 was one of the examples where Jesus was, was trying to hit on this, the thinking that even the apostles had, the early apostles, from from their Judaic training. They had been persecuted so much that they began to view their calling with pride instead of humility. And so everybody who wasn't Jewish was viewed as dogs. Gentiles were dogs, um, you know, a lesser breed. And so anyone, they were really taught to be us for and no more. And Jesus was hitting that 
square. He's telling him, hey, accept the good things, but you need to toss that part out because God is reaching out to all people. Consider John 3.16. Those are the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, and that was a big word when Jesus said that, whosoever believes. So that was the, the heart. Jesus is hitting in in Mark 9, this mindset, hey, this guy was over there uh, doing things in your name. We told him to stop. And Jesus said something that is the heart of this series. And, you know, he said to them, look, if they're not against us, they're for us. And so we need to look at the Roman Catholic Church as the oldest Christian institution on the planet. We don't need to be against them. We need to stand for what we know have vigorous armament where we need it, but again, walk in love. I can tell you there are strong believers. There's a remnant in every church. There's a remnant in this church. There are people who help keep us close to where we need to go. The Catholic Church simply is the oldest. How many of you have ever looked up your family tree? Raise your hands if you have. Have any surprises in that family tree? Any weird Uncle Johns that way back when? Yeah. John, you're really nodding. That, okay, okay. I mean, just real surprises. Well, the older your family is, the more surprises you're going to have. Some good and not, some not so good. You're going to have some histories. You just soon not be read aloud in public, okay? Well, the oldest church has that. In fact, any church that's been in existence at least 10 years has probably had to deal with a near split, an actual split, some nasty disagreements that went south. And if you're a church that's 2,000 years old, you're going to have a lot of nasties. And every problem that confronts human beings is going to show up in that church history. And the Catholic Church has it, has some horrendous stories of veering left and veering right and completely missing the call of God, getting involved in politics too much, getting involved in empire building, very serious problem for the church. You guys... Um, Power does corrupt, and absolute power does corrupt, absolutely. It doesn't matter if it's a church, it's a, if it's a federal government, if it's a local government, if it's a small church. When you get a little bit weird and you get off balance, bad things happen. So we need to remember with the Catholic Church, because of its history and longevity, it's had to deal with four major problems. The guys in the back are trying to figure out what in the world is he doing because they're going to put some up. Let me talk about strengths real quickly. The great strength that the Roman Catholic Church has given us and that we can appreciate in them is liturgy and sacrament. And sacrament really has its root in sacred. Sacrament means those things which are sacred or holy, uh, especially if God says they're holy. And there are some sacraments that the, that the Roman Catholic Church follows and leans on that we may not lean on as much or may totally disagree on. The point is they're saying some things are sacred, they're holy. They're worthy of recognizing that they're special. And we've lost that some on the Protestant side. We need to understand there are certain things that are holy. It changes the way. In other words, this is reserved for God. We need to understand that we are holy. Our lives are holy. See, if you don't understand there are sacred places and sacred times, you won't understand the value 
when we're told in Hebrews that your bodies are a holy sanctuary of the Lord. Sanctuary, the root word of sanctuary is sanctus, something holy and set apart. You won't understand like a Catholic might or a Jewish convert to the Lord. When they read Hebrews 12, 1, it freaks them out because they're being told that their life and even their physical body is holy to God. That means it's not supposed to be used for plain, twisted things. It's not. It's holy. It's set apart as special. It's even more special than your mother's dishes she put on the top shelf. You're special in the sight of God. It makes you act differently. It makes you make better choices when you realize there are some things you just don't go there because you're too precious. Listen, parents, if you can get your kids to understand that they are precious, it'll change how they pick a mate for life. How many girls are dumped into the dating scene not loving themselves, not realizing how precious they are, that they are holy in God's sight. And dads, I approve of you getting out the sharpest knives, the biggest guns, cleaning your guns in front of young men that want to come date your daughter. Just let them know. Just put the fear of God in them. Yes, yes. Let them know your daughter is precious in your sight. Arnie nearly scared the fire out of Pastor Devin. For a good reason, yeah. That was his baby girl he's talking about dating. You guys getting the idea about realizing there's some things that are holy and are sacred? If we can get back the sacred but maintain the intimacy, because God gives us both. We are taught to live in tension in the Scriptures on purpose. God is altogether holy and righteous, and yet God is love and mercy. You need to live in tension because if he's all love and mercy, you can live like hell and still run to God and get hugged. But if you understand that God is both love and mercy and he's righteous, he does not approve of sin. He does not approve of a rebellious lifestyle. You understand there is sin and there are consequences to sin. Our bad decisions have bad results. But also you realize he's quick to forgive and love and wipe the slate clean. You get in that balance, you're going to be all right. You go either way. You get into fear on the side of righteous all the time and waiting to beat you up with a baseball bat. But then you get into the loosey-goosey, greasy grace side, you're just going to be, there's going to be no difference between you and someone who believes God's a complete forever joke. So, strength. Liturgy is organized repetitive reading of Scripture, the important parts of Scripture. The Catholic Church developed liturgy because in the beginning, even to this day throughout the world, and I'm afraid it's happening in the United States again, uh, wherever you people have people who are not educated or are poorly educated, have poor reading skills, see my worry about the future, um, you have to make the, the gospel of Jesus plain and understandable. You have to make it real. And liturgy did that because the vast majority of people, even in the Western nations, for most of the centuries were not educated or were poorly educated. And so developing a liturgy that would work in Timbuktu and in Cairo in New York City was quite a feat. 
But what they did is they took the most important doctrines and they built them into the yearly calendar. And they did that repetitively so that year after year they began to to look at the scriptures and they'd see how David dealt with adversity and they'd see the statements of Jesus about loving their neighbor and it would come up again and again and they would be taught that and then they'd add a sermon or a homily on top of it. But because of that, the Catholic Church ended up being the same in one nation in one century as it is in our nation in this century. It brought stability. Nowadays, we call that Christian education in the Protestant world. And we, and we follow the same thing. Do you know what we teach our children when we pull out uh, training literature? We want to buy a curriculum. Do you know what that is? Curriculum is liturgy. We think it's something fancy. No, it is systematic, logical training in the important things of following Jesus. We have the Roman Catholic Church to thank for that. Sacrament, again, is those holy things. This is a sacrament. It's one of those sacred things that unites us, reminds us of the cost and of the power of the cross. This is sacred. Now, does that mean we can't ever touch it? No. It means we need to understand what it represents and the power of the work of Jesus. For this reason, once you understand it, I know at ORU, or Roberts University, years ago in the 70s, you know, there were still a few dinosaurs in Tulsa by then. But we used to uh, have communion. We had a voluntary student service we call Vespers uh, every Friday night. We had 2,000 students show up just because they wanted to. It was never mandatory, just because they wanted to for about two hours. And the highlight of every service was the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And we had miracles happen. Healings took place because they would always teach the power of the cross and the resurrection, the power of the blood of Jesus, the power of the stripes that he bore on his back. And then we would take that in his name, remembering him, and we had physical healings, we had relationships healed. In those days, there weren't cell phones, so there were pay phones in the back. Those pay phones were filled after every Vesper service, people calling and reconciling relationships, calling their parents saying, I'm sorry calling uh, friends <clears throat> that they had, you know, distanced themselves from, just correcting their relationships because they're reminded at communion, relationships matter. We can thank the church for preserving that. It's important. We're trying to bring that back. The problem the church faced and the problem our church faces is we forget. One of the challenges we face today is how can we pass the living relationship with Jesus onto our children and onto our children's children so that it's real to them, not just because mom and dad went to church. That is the great challenge of every family. We want them to think for themselves, but they need to be guided. That's why we bring our kids to church. But we know the day is going to come where they have to make the choice for themselves with their own brains, their own hearts, and then they're the ones that are going to have to follow through with it. Well, the church failed as much as we fail. Only they have 2,000 years of failure. So at times, the church has veered far left, has become a purely political organization, making political decisions with the inevitable results of political decisions. And then God would cause, because he loves that church, he would cause reforms to come like the 95 Theses, 
you know, that, that were nailed on the door by, uh, um, I'm forgetting Luther, I think. But anyway, um, that happened because a pope, Pope Leo, uh, loved things about the church, but he, uh, my phone's telling me it's time to quit. Uh, so I'm going to quit her soon. But to build a cathedral, he was selling indulgences, basically payoffs for your sin. But he was desperate to get money to finish St. Peter's Basilica. He had spent all the money in the coffers and all kinds of other projects, and he wanted to do that. And Martin Luther, who was from the church in Germany, visited, saw that going on, and that infuriated him. So he wrote a 95 theses or 95 points that concerned him as a Catholic priest about the church. And it so irritated Leo, and uh, when he wouldn't recant and back off, then Pope Leo excommunicated Luther from the church. And what that did is that triggered, uh, at that point, the German church was, German part of the Catholic church was already having some problems, and they took those 95 theses, agreed with them, and the Protestant Revolution began. Well, in response to that, the church called the Treaty of Trent and all that stuff. But anyway, it brought reforms to the Catholic Church. Not the first one. There's many things that have happened since then. Those of you who are Catholic hopefully have done a nice, non-prejudicial statement about the Catholic Church. Okay? Um, the weaknesses is that they dealt with problems you and I deal with. And... Uh, if I can get to my notes, I'm going to tell you, and we're going to finish with this thing. It is really hard holding the microphone doing paperwork at the same time. So it wants to go every place. They deal with the problems of money, morality, power, and pride. Money, morality, power, and pride. We face that right now in our church, always will. Every denomination has faced that. Those are the things even the 12 disciples had to deal with. We had disciples wanting to, two brothers wanting to be the favorites. And Jesus telling them, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, he had to deal with those same problems with them. So you and I have to deal with that. But they became uh, mired in empire building and... Uh, got involved with uh, Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire, and later the secular world after he died, then the church took over the Roman Empire and became the Holy Roman Empire. And you can imagine what happens when church and all of government become one. It gets nasty. Uh, Jesus begins to disappear in the distance, and the political power and money handling and everything rises to the front. So... Really, the church isn't called into empire building. We are called into building the church of Jesus Christ. We're called to focus on Jesus and loving people with his heart, having a sacrificial life like Jesus had. And when we do that, the church grows, no matter what kind of government is around us. Have you ever wondered why the church prospers even in communist nations, in atheist nations? In Buddhist nations, in every kind of nation out there, the church prospers. In fact, it usually does better under persecution than it does when we have it our way. You ever notice that? The church, the church had a problem immediately after Constantine declared that Rome was now a, uh, a Christian nation. Basically, 
Millions of people came into the church, but they didn't come to Jesus. Big difference between those two. So our challenge today is to learn from where the church was, to learn that we face the same problems. We're making the same mistakes now that the Roman Catholic Church made hundreds of years ago. We just didn't bother to learn from them. And yet, if we can also hold to the sturdy things, we need to keep the most important things most important. Focus on those things which are central. And number one is Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. We need to stick and stay with what's most important and let that rule all of our decision-making in our life. If we do that, even if you make a mistake, God can bend you and get you back where you're supposed to go. Just think of David, who made many mistakes but God was able to get him back because he had a heart that was after God. 